Welcome to Space Strategy, a podcast from the American Foreign Policy Council's Space Policy Initiative, where we are shaping a vision for the next strategic frontier. Now here's your host, AFPC Senior Fellow in Defense Studies, Peter Gerritsen. Welcome to the Space Strategy Podcast. Today, my guest is Steve Bucky Buteau, who is the Director of the Portfolio at the Defense Innovation Unit, DIU. He joined the team in 2015 as an early plank owner when DIU was known as the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental and helped establish the organization's operating locations in Silicon Valley, Boston, Massachusetts, and Austin, Texas. Prior to joining DIU, General Buteau was the Vice Chief of the Joint Staff of the California Military Department with responsibilities including cybersecurity, incident awareness, and innovation. He's a former commander of the 129th Rescue Wing at Moffett Federal Field, California, where his responsibilities included organizing, training, equipping, and maintaining 970 combat-ready forces and $1 billion of MC-130P aircraft, helicopters, and special mission equipment supporting the U.S. Air Force's combat rescue and personnel missions. And we have had General Buteau on before for a much longer time, but here we are talking about an exciting piece of news, a recently released report. So welcome, General Buteau. Oh, thank you. Uh, great to be back. So this, uh, this report, the State of the Space Industrial Base that just came out, would you talk a little bit about it and why it's uh, significant and exciting? Well, it's interesting. And you may remember a few years ago, we thought don't adequate leverage our commercial sector as we should for many different technology efforts, endeavors, especially space. And so, um, you know, all across government, we've been engaging with the space industrial base for a variety of different things, normally for traditional space activities. But we noticed that a couple of things that draw our attention, not just the uh, tremendous explosion in innovation that's occurring right now. In fact, many, including, including both of us, would say that we're living in a transformational era in space, but also because the attention our commercial sector gets from foreign governments, and, uh, and especially the, the nefarious ones that either steal intellectual property or manipulate the investment market, or just all, all out buy and, and move companies offshore. So this combination really grew into an interest to not just have a workshop and put out a report on the state of the space industrial base, but also to, to make it a recurring activity. So this, this year was actually the third year that we've done this now. We've always done it in collaboration with the AFRL, Air Force Research Lab, Space Vehicles Directorate. And then uh, last year, we uh, added the Space Force. And so the, the Space Force is, a, is also a, a key collaborator. So the, uh, between DIU, the Space Force, and AFRL, we uh, co-sponsor the organization of this activity. And then being true stewards of private sector and trying to get things out of the department, we also partnered with uh, Space New Mexico for the second year. We did the workshop this summer in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which was fantastic, not just because of the weather, but because uh, COVID allowed a, us to get a good-sized number of people together. You can't replace that. You know, we do a lot of virtual events, and uh, we still had virtual participation. This year, we had almost double the number of uh, participants that we have had in previous years. So, the, so there's definitely growing interest. And I'm sure no one will be disappointed with the quality of the report, the recommendations and the content. It's, it's really a, it's a real fun read, uh, all of the activity that's going on and where it's going to take us. And, and who comes to these events? Is this a government-only meeting or who, who's attending? Oh, great question. 
So uh, primarily, uh, uh, you know, government would love to crowd out everybody, but uh, primarily a conference designed for the industrial base. So we get companies big and small. Uh, prime companies come, uh, a lot of companies who've been in, in the space business for many years, but we also extend that to academia. You know, uh, most best ideas that are evolving into real capabilities were once just thought experiments in the academic labs and other private research institutions. But we also bring in the government lab personnel as well. And then a very interesting uh, aspect of this workshop, because of our tie to the commercial sector, is we have an increasing amount of people who study economics and they study the financial markets and looking at how do we posture ourselves so that we have the capital and the market conditions that are ripe to leverage all these new and emerging capabilities at one time. And so there is a very, very good role, which we'll talk about for government. And government uh, needs to be both an early adopter and somewhat of a, a visionary, an orchestra director of a lot of this activity. And, and that's actually a historic normal. We've, we've spoken on previous um, podcasts about how the Eisenhower did to get the state highway system uh, put together or Lincoln with the railroads. Even for both of us being long-tenured people with the U.S. Air Force, with the commercial sector and its role in the aviation, the development of, of, of the airplane and, and uh, rapid growth to meet the needs of, of the armed forces during World War II. It's, it's extraordinary uh, when, when these stars align and we w- really bring the best of industry, academia, and government together to deliver capabilities for the American people and the world, quite honestly. And as I read this report, it's very much sort of a calling to, to play that role in what appears to be an emerging economic mm-hmm. sector. You ever wonder, you know, it's kind of interesting. I always wonder why, you know, when, uh, when you go to uh, most of these uh, drive-by cafes and you go to get a, a coffee, they make you parade past the dessert counter, right? <laughs> so you, you see all the pastries, everything else like that, right? It's like, Wow, that looks really good. I want some of that. You want to, by the time you get to the register, you're like all in. You're ready to get a coffee and you know something special, right? And uh, and you and you leave and you feel good about it. And so I think what this report allows us to do is have that kind of same effect. People see, you know, space uh, is not cheap, right? It takes a lot of money to do interesting things in space and to do it safely and successfully and repetitively. And so we can't just have a situation where we're asking the government or the American people or investors to put put their precious few dollars that they, they have set aside for something else and say, well, why should we invest in space? Well, what we're able to do here is give them a glimpse of what the near future is, not the far future. What, what is actually going to occur uh, within just the next few months, next few years? It's, we're not even talking in terms of decades anymore. The, the rate of change, the pace of the innovation is so incredible. All you have to do is look at uh, Boca Chica, Texas, and what's happening with Starship down there to really get even a small glimpse and appreciation for the pace of innovation and how committed people are to go in this direction. And that's just Elon, right? And you you can single out and pick out different billionaires, but over the past decade, uh, we've had over $200 billion of money Go in, of investment, private investment going into 1,500 companies. 
which is pretty staggering. And most of those companies are still around. In fact, eight of them closed SPAC or special uh, purpose acquisition uh, contracts this year with many of those companies uh, achieving unicorn status, meaning they're, they have valuations in excess of a billion dollars now. And what are they doing? They're looking at uh, most of them are tied in with the next wave of broadband communications or ultra inexpensive uh, access to low Earth orbit or other things, other things that really ha- uh, you know, improving the integrity of our, of our uh, precision navigation and timing. So the, there's many extraordinary companies that are, that are becoming normal, a normal part of the e- economic sphere, and they're going to be listed as public companies, and they're actually doing pretty good. I didn't look at any of them today, but I'm, I'm sure that if I did with third quarter <laughs> earnings closeouts, they're, they're starting to do some, some good activity. So this report summarizes the work and thinking of an immense and very diverse number of thinking, but you're listed as as one of the authors, and you have some other heavy hitters as your co-authors. Who are they and why should we listen to them? Oh, that's great. First, I have to mention, of course, a new author this year, but not new at all to the uh, space community. And that would be John Olson. He's a Brigadier General uh, with the Space Force. He has a previous time serving at both NASA and commercial industry and in, in government. And he's, uh, he's really extraordinary, a great thought leader. His formal military title is the uh, mobility assistant to uh, the chief of space operations. So he works in the front office with General Raymond and General Thompson and the people who are really steering the Space Force for for the nation. We also are joined again second year by uh, Eric Felt and Tom Cooley, uh, both with the Air Force Research Laboratory as director and, and deputy. And those, those guys are, are fantastic. You know better than most that uh, the Air Force Research Laboratory is really doing most of the uh, uh, significant experimentation for space, right? Not, not just for the air. So the AR4L as part of the, under the Department of the Air Force is providing that research and technology uh, laboratory environment for the air and space domains. And there's few labs that are better than I'll get in trouble for saying this, but there's a few labs uh, other than AFRL that really has the kind of impact. And I, I, I want to say selfishly because they're also probably our most significant partner in crime at the Defense Innovation Unit. <laughs> so we, most of our projects that we work on, AFRL, RV is our, is our collaborator. So it's, it's a fantastic uh, relationship. And then lastly, we have Dr. Joel Mosier. Joel is also a, uh, a returning author He's the, currently the Director of Science, Technology, and Research at the U.S. Space Force. Well, that's quite the exciting uh, lineup, and I hope that I'll be able to get some of those folks uh, on the podcast as well to talk about their perspective on the report. Mm-hmm. You mentioned General Raymond, and I gather from the uh, introductory letter that the report has caught the attention of both General Raymond and Senator Bill Nelson, the NASA Administrator, where they say, Insights and recommendations uh, have the power to unite and unleash the full innovative technological, entrepreneurial, and industrial capacity of the United States, which seems like a a pretty good recommendation to read the report. Um, So let's talk now about what are these insights and recommendations in the report? Well, let me first mention that, you know, um, both uh, Senator Nelson 
and General Raymond present an interesting challenge for those of us who consider ourselves the enthusiasts <laughs> within the DoD space community. It's hard. It's hard to keep up with the excitement that that these both of these uh, gentlemen put out when they address people. In fact, we tried to we tried to aggregate every time that General Raymond said that we should be leveraging and doing more with commercial. I think we lost count. I mean, it's just it's, it's a normal thing. It's it's not a normal thing in in government parlance, but it, it's a normality for the U.S. Space Force. And so I think it's it's a very important cultural distinction that they is occurred under General Raymond's leadership. And then with NASA, I you know I wish in DoD that we were putting the kind of dollars into commercial private part uh, public private partnerships and and other efforts that that NASA's done. They're really the leaders at doing that, and we should be following that example. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But uh, what NASA has done in the in the past over the past decade with their commercial crew, even finding ways to offer commercial opportunities as part of the Artemis program and the return to the moon, extraordinary. And that cannot be a one-off. That needs to be normalized. It needs to be normalized within DoD, NOAA. Many other organizations that are guilty of on all charges of uh, not invent having the not invented here itis, wanting to only go with requirements driven procurements of systems that we simply cannot afford to design, build, and sustain beyond what is their logical uh, relevance horizon. I'll just say it like that. But anyways, yeah. So so I, I think it's it's a it's a great because you know that makes this report even more exciting to know that all these gentlemen really applaud the efforts uh, and and see some of these recommendations as being actionable with the kind of support behind us with the uh, at the executive and the legislative branches. And and just before we go into the recommendations, let's let's hold the audience in suspense for a little bit. This report chronicles basically uh, enormous change in the field over the last year. So could you, could you talk a little bit about what changes we've seen in this last year before we get into the recommendations? Well, you know, the last uh, workshop that we had, we had planned to meet in person and we wound up meeting virtually. And that was really, we met literally at the two months after COVID started. And who knew that we would still be restrictions of the COVID pandemic this far into the future and the impact it had on our economy and just a commercial marketplace in general. As soon as COVID hit, the capital markets collapsed. And so we were in a very precarious place. We didn't even know if the space commercial space sector would survive past this pandemic. And so the fact that it's done exactly the opposite, and I, and I won't say it was just by chance. I, I think there was some very good things that we did on the government side to make sure that we were setting up the reinforcing with the investors that we have we are interested and excited to see these uh, these innovations continue and that and that there is business to be had in working not just in the commercial sector but also with the defense of our of our nation by uh, making these uh, products and services available for us uh, to procure or subscribe or or just uh, have access uh, on a subscription uh, or a service basis. Some of the things that have happened over last year, my goodness. Well, 
I, I mentioned that we had eight SPAC transactions close this year, and that is phenomenal. You know, if you're gonna be if you're gonna be in a business of launching rockets, you don't go at that unless you've got a lot of money. Not all the rocket companies are owned and operated by billionaires. There are some others that are startups have been very successful, uh, and the the burn rate for that kind of activity is is very high. You know, millions of dollars a month, and so. The fact that these companies were able to still get funding and then also move towards public marketplace is really extraordinary. Astra Space, of, uh, located up in Alameda, California, was the first space company to, to go public you know, from a, a pure startup. And, and they actually, they have a, a launch coming up in a, in a little more than 24 hours. And, Let me just uh, uh, stop for, for just a moment, just in case sure. any of our, my audience doesn't understand the, the, the lingo. So startup burn rate going public, what are these and why are they important? Well, a startup, uh, any, any small organization, non-traditional innovators, if you're in the government space, you know, we only think about traditional companies of record to go and solve our problems. A startup company is really a new business venture and many times it could be a couple of grad students who just left the university and and got some seed funding to pursue an idea. What's interesting is that on the DIU model, we don't, we don't put out requirements and prescribe what the solution is and ask companies to make bids to build those things for us. What we do is we put the problem out there and we say, tell us how you would solve this problem with your commercial solution and make it available to us. So, as, so we would be, not be an investor or, or a government you know, definer of that requirement, we'd rather just be the, the end user, an early adopter. Uh, in order for those companies to pursue their ideas, they have to raise venture capital. They have to raise pr uh, private financing. They can get some dollars through the Small Business Innovative Research Program, and that's been extended with AFWorks, SpaceWorks, many other organizations, the NSF, NASA. Those all have small business innovation research funds, but they're Generally, pretty small. You know, we're talking like a hundred thousand, maybe two hundred fifty thousand dollars entry, and uh, you can't build a lot of space capability with that. Although it's it's getting a little bit easier now, but with small sats and and the like. So so these companies have to go out and raise money. In order to raise money in outside of the government space, they have to be able to show that they have a, a valid business model. In other words, they can generate revenue at the end of the day. So when we pick projects at DIU, we pick them because they're technically we say technically feasible and commercially viable. A small satellite that can, that can be built for a million dollars that can do synthetic aperture radar at, with sub-meter resolution, that's pretty incredible. For that company to be able to go out and have a large constellation and make those services and that, those images available on the open market at a greatly reduced price uh, from what the traditional vendors have offered over, over the years is, is that makes it commercially viable. And what's even better is when those, I'll take that example further, when that technology is designed to be poor, uh, to have data and imagery that's portable into the next generation of advanced analytics, AI and machine learning, computer vision algorithms so that no human ever has to look at it, then that's even more, more extraordinary. So that, so we this so what I just described is something that over the past decade is really kind of rocked the boat in terms of the way that we've traditionally taken advantage of imagery from space, where we take an image, 
we, the image itself and, and the processing it usually costs thousands upon thousands of dollars. And then we have humans who are well-trained to look at those images, interpret them, write up the reports, and then provide information to those who need it. And that is not a low latency process, right? So if you need information and you and you can use it within days, that's fine. But if you need it that same process within hours or minutes, uh, you can't get there from here. So the uh, so what you need instead is you need innovation. Innovation is really not invention, but innovation, as I described it, would be the combination of of small satellites with with uh, data. Uh, uh, broadband data architectures and an advanced analytics to give us timely compute at the edge of, or, you know, or in situ and, and provide information back to the people who need it, whether it's a warfighter or it's a investor on Wall Street, or it could be somebody who's just uh, trying to uh, determine their own safety or find their kids, you know, when they were uh, out playing in the park. I mean, we, we want to have that kind of fidelity of information going into the future. Now you talked about that these are these are the startups and you get you use venture capital to become companies and uh, and you talked a little bit about the burn rate that they go through yes. you know, during the time but you also mentioned just now that we had our first space company go public. Right. What does that mean and right. why is that exciting? Right. So the, on the burn rate is just how much capital these companies have to take through shy of having revenue, right? So the, the burn rate is what their output is in terms of expenditures month to month. And that drives how much money they have to raise. And, and it's interesting because companies need to raise money incrementally. If you go out and raise five years of financing, you're going to basically sell your company to do that. If you raise a little bit of money over a short period of time, each time you go back to raise more money, the valuation of your company increases and the risk drops. And so it makes it easier to get more money for more favorable terms. So that's the whole burn rate. At some point, you're going to, you're going to be ready to enter the marketplace. And this is where investors really want, to, not just the, the, the venture capital mechanism is designed to really make the bulk of its money when a company exits, right? So they they exit by being acquired by another company or moving into the public you know, marketplace. In other words, get listed on the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 or any one of those indices. And so New York Stock Exchange, whatever it is. So the, the company will actually go and get approved by the SEC to go public. And they'll usually ring the bell on their first opening day. And from that point forward, the company is really structured Anyone in the public space can invest in that company. And so, um, so the nice thing with that is now it's not just limited to venture capitalists or pri large private equity investors. Anybody who wants to make an investment in space can, can do it at that point. But more importantly, with the way the SPAC transaction works, these special purpose acquisition contracts, usually a, a private equity company or a firm that's going to actually manage this flow into the commercial market or the public market rather, they will raise funds and then they will help manage the company so it successfully transitions into the public space. But part of that is, is that they, they, the, there's amount of funding that will go into the company. So if you look at any one of the deals that have closed this year, typically what will happen is the company will go public. They'll be, uh, for a short period of time, they'll be co-listed with another financial company 
but then they'll they'll come out under their own index, you know, heading, and then but they'll also get a large amount of capital uh, immediately injected into the company. So for some of the rocket companies that have gone public, and some of the satellite companies have gone public, they're getting like hundreds of millions of dollars of cash into the company so that they can really build infrastructure and go from from really product evolution to product production. Production is really everything. All you have to do is listen to Elon on any of the uh, any of the interviews he he does talking about his company and how the science of taking something into production is really the most complex and difficult part of the task. But it's also the most important one if you're trying to drive down the cost of access to space or the quality of the equipment we're going to use in space, we need to get to production grade capabilities that have the same, you should have the same expectation of, you know, operating use as your smartphone or any or your car or anything else you jump into and use every day. It takes a while to get there, but the, but the, this is a, this is a well oil process in the industry is just new for space because we haven't had real space companies uh, do this before. So looking in the report, it looks like there's been just a, a bunch of stuff that's happened. Not, not one, but several companies appear to have gone public or announced that they're going public via this, this SPAC route. It, it appears as if you've had a number of successful launches of DOD-sponsored commercial payloads as well as a sort of a, a record amount of capitalization. Anything else you want to comment on with regard to the, the big news of the last year? Well, I think uh, we there, we have a nice section in the report that not only celebrates our victories, but also tells what China's done in the last year. And that's pretty staggering. They launched their first space station. They've put some of the largest pieces of material into space they've ever accomplished before. They're launching more satellites. You know, I spoke a bit about our small sat companies that are doing synthetic aperture radar. And those companies have been targeting to do on order of like 40 satellites. China is going to create a Chinese company to do it with 400 satellites. And so what does that mean? That means more revisit rates. So we're going to be on approach to where the limit is persistence, right? So they, yeah, the, more, the more timely your information, the greater value it has. And this is very worrisome because in other parts of the market where we've ignored China and their investments and their nation state ability to you know, compete with, uh, with our small companies, they usually win that fight. So it's, it's, this could all be for naught if we are not careful and if we don't make sure that, that we protect not just the U.S. companies, but other the companies under our allies and friends that, all, that the competition, the market places is fair and, and equitable and that as long as companies uh, compete fairly, there's enough business for everyone. China doesn't always play that way. And, uh, and the report's pretty good about describing some of the things that they've done. It, yes, in many ways, the report seems to be somewhat of a clarion call about how to engage in strategic competition. Mm-hmm. Now, who is the report targeted at? Well, the, the report is really targeted to decision makers, and uh, especially at, at the national level. So um, we specifically will talk, and not we, the government agencies that co-sponsor, but we, the industrial base that represented uh, membership in this report, they're elevating these recommendations to, to the president, the executive, to the National Space Council, 
National Security Council, the heads of the major departments and agencies, and but also to Congress and Senate. So many of the things that we should be doing, we have we unfortunately we wind up slowing down on because we don't we don't have the the level of, of investment uh, necessary to get from here to there in a short period of time. And uh, now I, I think I mentioned $200 billion of the last decade of private investment. That's a lot of money, but that money wasn't just there because there was no interest on behalf of the government. On the contrary, that money was invested because the private markets have seen and the government has messaged effectively that it's interested in doing more commercial economic uh, and uh, other activities in the space domain. So a key part of this, and I, and I think it's the is the one thing that our leaders in government don't understand is that if they effectively communicate and message, or in the commercial industry they say signal, don't have a a breakfast buffet and and have all kinds of nice trinkets and and wine and dine us and tell us how important it is that we invest. If you want us to invest. You invest, and we will come in. We will fastball behind you in a, in a in a significant way. Great example of this is a couple of years ago. You remember the U.S. was actually a minority party in terms of the overall contribution to space launch, and especially commercial space launch. And there was a concerted effort on government to say, "Hey, we need more launch. We need commercial launch." NASA put out RFPs for launch services to service the International Space Station with equipment, and then also eventually with crews. All these things collectively signal to the marketplace that there's a demand for commercial space services, and and the market responded. And now, what I go into meetings and the government says, you know, it's like, why is there over 200 space launch companies? Well, there isn't over 200 space launch companies. What you're seeing is you're seeing the aggregate of what happens when the government effectively signals what its needs are and where there's opportunity for uh, the commercial sector to come in and provide a capability. What we need to do now is signal something else. And, and that's, a, that's one of the big things that this report does is we, uh, we talk about a North Star vision for space and what it, should, what it should be and what, how, what it should represent. And if we signal that properly, uh, we won't have to do too much other than make sure that we're also co-investors in this and really posture the United States uh, to come out on top of the 21st century as being the political, philosophical, and social leader uh, that it is and preserving our values of freedom and democracy. If we don't do that, I'm very worried about what the future is going to look like, not just for the United States, but for, for the world. We'll be getting the North Star vision in, in just a moment. But in the report, you spend some time attempting to reframe space in the public debate. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you feel that was necessary and how does space need to be reframed? Space has always been seen as kind of like unattainium. Right. In other words, space is a place that only you can only access it when you spend billions of dollars. It requires uh, a small group of extremely talented or very bright people to do, even putting humans in space. So the whole thing was 
was just, uh, we marveled at seeing all the great achievements uh, over the past 50, 60 years of base technology evolution. But now, look what happened this year. I mean, we had how many private citizens have gone to space with tickets that they bought themselves. We even had, you know, the crew of Inspiration4 orbit the Earth for a few days with no astronauts on board. It was, they went and they came back safely and they enjoyed everything except for the toilet experience. And, uh, and so who wouldn't want to go and do that now? And of course, you know, this all started with the Virgin Galactic's launch earlier this summer, followed by Blue Origin uh, New Shepard launch. And uh, my favorite one just more recently with William Shatner on it. This is, uh, this is fantastic because what it is, is people are realizing space is not that far away. It's a shorter to get the space than it is to get from San Francisco to uh, Sacramento and here in California. But then they also realize just how precious and unique the earth is because there's not that much atmosphere that enables us to survive here. And then space is vast and with a lot of uh, mystery and, and opportunity. So I actually think that the more people who do this, it's just a natural that they're going to want to really become more of a part of a, of a space faring space settling species that, that moves beyond the earth. And, and I think, I think that's going to be, that's going to be probably the most significant philosophical enlightenment thing that happens in this, uh, in this century. Now you have talked early on about a government role and you've talked about uh, the, the need to sort of have a vision and, you know, I believe one of your recommendations that we'll discuss later is about a North Star vision. So why, why did the, does the industrial base feel like there's a need for a North Star vision? And what does the report say about a North Star vision? Well, actually, I think that I don't think the, uh, I'm going to challenge that. I don't think the industry requires a North Star vision. I actually think industry is actually got a more bold vision than, than the government has. I mean, you know, SpaceX being the case in point there. So I think what this North Star vision does is it provides a way for the government and a government is very large and very bureaucratic. And if, if, if there's not a whole of government uh, vector to move the nation collectively in one direction, we can have a lot of constructive interference even between agencies right? And that's not a good thing. I'll give you a great example of this. So space traffic management, right? So it's currently space traffic management is really a function provided by the Space Force. Commerce is supposed to be uh, taking charge of it, but the FAA does air traffic management and doesn't understand why they wouldn't also do space traffic management. In the meantime, the commercial sector is building sensors and providing space traffic management as a service. And so what happens, everybody's doing what they, they do at the, well, I'll say the tactical level. In other words, within the sphere of their own influence, they're doing exactly what they think is best for their from their agency's perspective. But at the strategic level about what's really best in terms of nation and what's best for the nation is something that makes sense, that doesn't cost a lot of money. And certainly doesn't impede industry or economic growth, because that's, if you like taxes, you need a, you need a, you'll even like it when, or when there's a lot of revenue out there, because that tax is tied to revenues, right? <laughs> Not to deficits. So, so I, I think it's really important that regardless of what your, your thoughts are, that we try to do things you know, right now. And it, it's through no one's fault of their own. 
just the evolution, the rapid evolution of satellite technology, it's actually cheaper and easier for a U.S. company to go and get their licenses in Europe than it is to get it in the United States. And that's not a good thing. So we need to not just evolve technology, but we need to evolve policy with that technology and our regulatory practices. So we, we keep a fair and competitive environment. Businesses can thrive and grow. And as they thrive and grow, what do they do? They hire people. They uh, create jobs. They create more economic opportunity. They use the supply chain. And this is very important. So I think what's really consistent in the report is that we really tie all these new technological things to not just how they impact national security, but how they impact the economy. Right now, everyone's looking at the tremendous spending that we've done, not just for infrastructure, but just to get out of things like, like the COVID pandemic. Well, you know, the, that, those kind of deficits can be reduced rapidly with new economic activities that put trillions of dollars into our U.S. economy. The last time we did that was the creation of the internet, right? So that the internet, you know, we all, most of us know what the what life was like before the internet, but the creation of the internet has put $2 trillion and a few hundred million jobs into our, into our economy. Who wouldn't want that? And what we do is say, so where's the next internet? Where's the next, you know, transformational high impact opportunity for us to leverage, to, to continue to grow and strengthen the United States? And space is really it. I mean, it's, Space is going to be such an enabler because uh, you want resources. There's, you know, there's infinite resources in space compared to what's available here on the earth. If you want uh, you, Peter, are an advocate for power, cheap, green, effective power, not tied to hazardous materials. We can generate that from space. We can fabricate and produce new medicines, new technologies, human organs. We can grow human organs and tissue in space. Most people don't know what we can do in space because we haven't done a very good job of educating it. I really applaud senior listed leader for the Space Force uh, this week and saying, hey, we should have space education so people learn all these things that are going on in space. It's, it's part of the normal curriculum of going to school. And it's, it's, it's really important that people realize this because if we realize it too late, that all that opportunity is going to be uh, consumed by somebody else and it'll be China. Let's talk about the competitive get well plan. I see in the executive summary that you've got 18 major recommendations. Could you run us through those? And if we've got time, we'll discuss one or two of them. I will. I'll high level hit all of them, but just understand that they're not all equal. So I'll do as you say, but uh, but then I'll, I'll just launch it immediately into the two or three that I think are the, the most important. So really, Kicking things off, uh, what we did is we put our recommendations in two general categories, right? Actually, actually, we put them in three. I'm sorry. So we put the first one was recommendations for the White House and the Space Council. So one through 10, let's have our top 10 list. Then we have recommendations for the Department of Defense. And then we wrap up with uh, recommendations for the venture capital uh, and private investors that that. that that really influence things outside of the government space. So number one through 10 for the executive National Space Council, one is to establish space settlement, I'm sorry, space development and settlement as our national North Star space vision. Two, build back beyond to incorporate the moon into the earth economic sphere by catalyzing the space superhighway 
I'll talk about that in a second. Three, sustain funding for the hybrid space architecture as a foundation for the future space internet. Four, expand the Artemis Accords beyond NASA. Five, increase space science and technology funding to parity with other domains. And those other domains being air, sea, land, cyber. These are all domains in which we invest in uh, for not just national security, but other activities across government. Six, reform policy to address 21st century conditions. Very important. We don't live in the cold era anymore. Totally different conditions today. Seven, declare space as a special economic zone and deploy the full range of tools. Eight, recognize space critical infrastructure and make space a part of infrastructure plans. A lot of dialogue on that these days. Nine, make space a central part of climate action plans. And 10, include space in supply chain planning. So the a lot of things that are actually, uh, even since the workshop, like the supply chain, these are, these are issues that have really risen in importance of late. Energy, climate, supply chain, and space plays a critical role in all of these things. Now, 11 through 16, these are attendee recommendations for DoD. 11, integrate JADC2 with this hybrid space architecture. JADC2 is the Joint All-Domain Command Control Architecture. It just means, basically, it's internet for the military. <laughs> so just think about it like that. 12, enable the space superhighway by including commercial solutions for in-space logistics infrastructure. We'll come back on that one. That's one of my favorites. 13, mandate a percentage of commercial service buys starting by uh, 2022. What that means is that if we get billion dollars, if we say, hey, 10% of that or 20% of that has to go to commercial procurements, then that would be something that the department can do to make sure that it's putting adequate uh, funding in towards commercial uh, technology. Let's see, 14, expand use and management of space commercial services with the Space Force. That's actually well under its way with the Commercial Satellite Communications Office. 15, bolder acquisition reform means a more level playing field for all business, particularly small business. 16, enable rapid innovation by shifting resources from SBIR to OTAs. SBIR being a small business innovative research grants, which is something created in the last century, and other transaction authorities or something that we've highly leveraged in this century as a way of doing not just innovation, but acquisition. And the last two recommendations are geared at the private investors. One is balanced growth requires investment beyond LEO. In other words, we actually have a the bulk of the revenue in space today comes from the satellites and geo, the geostationary communications platforms, and then followed by low Earth orbit satellites. But there's many other orbits and orbit beyond the Earth that we want to see investment going. And then finally, expand investments in enabling technologies. So if you want to build things in space, you need a spacecraft to get there, but you need robotics, you need interfaces, you need software, you need microelectronics. There's many enabling technologies. And you know what that does? That's where your job growth and job growth and uh, creation is. That's how you get all 50 states working in things that are going to go on orbit because our manufacturing base, our talent base is spread across the nation with a lot of expertise that's already there. We just have to apply it to new technological challenges. So those are the 18 recommendations kind of in a, in a fast shuttle. And I'm ready to talk about the ones I think are most worthy to focus on right away. Absolutely. Which are the ones that you uh, want to call specific attention to? 
Okay. Well, I really think the thing with the number one, establishing space development and settlement as the North Star's vision for space, that is a repeat recommendation. In other words, that was our number one recommendation last year, and it's the number one recommendation this year. And the reason it's there is because we really see it needs to be a whole of nation effort, not a NASA effort, not a DOD effort, not a SpaceX effort. It needs, or any university effort, it needs to be a whole of nation effort, government, industry, academia. For SMART, we we'll even bring our friends and allies in, into this as well. That's where the Artemis Accords go, right? So that we can really bring together civil, commercial, and national security space and get it moving in one direction. Nobody wants to see us militarizing space, but there's a lot of things that we can do in space that will assure free access and availability uh, for the future using commercial and other means. You can only do so much with civil space. And you know, NASA does a great job, but you know, NASA's job is to go, go explore and do science. When you explore, you don't need infrastructure. You bring everything with you that you need to do the exploration. And then and you're willing to throw things away and, and not bring a lot back. That's not what the industrial base requires. Uh, every industry requires infrastructure to build its business upon. And there is no infrastructure other than maybe our GPS satellite system and our communications satellite systems that are in space. Very next to nothing in transportation, logistics, manufacturing, none of that stuff exists today. And even digitally, there's not a lot of digital connectivity in space. Infrastructure is a major theme across this report and its framing and in several of the sections. That sort of hints at, uh, you know, I, I saw you jump at the interest in talking about the space superhighway. Could, could you talk a little bit about it? Right. Very important to clarify, too, that when we talk about space infrastructure, we're not talking about rebuilding launch pads. Everybody on this podcast should know that when the government goes to a private company and says, I'm going to pay you to launch my stuff into space. The government's not building that launch pad. Those private companies are going and raising the money and they're rebuilding all that infrastructure and tailoring it to their needs. Is there a terrestrial inf infrastructure that the government needs to invest in? Yes, but it's not the majority. We're talking about infrastructure in space, right? So that uh, this is uh, real space infrastructure, not terrestrial infrastructure. But uh, yeah, let me get this on this uh, other point. So to retain our leadership in space, the United States must catalyze uh, what we're calling the space superhighway. And why is this? Well, it turns out, and there's a nice graphic in the report, that throughout human history, the introduction of every new transportation modality brings with it significant economic opportunity. We just talked about that, right? It's for how do we maintain U.S. leadership in this century? Well, it turns out that historically, uh, each time that's happened, the, the ones who benefit the most are the first movers. In other words, first mover advantage is skewed favorably in each of those situations. So if we say we need a space superhighway uh, that, that connects orbits, to including uh, within the Earth-Moon system and eventually a space superhighway that gets us to Mars, what does that mean? That means that we are enabling the infrastructure that allows us to not just transport goods, but to move information, to live, to operate, to produce, to do all these things that, that we've talked about previously on, on the show. They all require infrastructure. And the space superhighway is just a moniker for what that is. And that's going to be 
outpost. If you think of logistics infrastructure as normally and many different configurations, but most people are familiar with a hub and spoke thing. That's how the airlines are set up is hub and spoke. And so the hubs would be outposts or space stations and the spokes would be tugs or things that can move between those outposts that ferry or do activities. An outpost could be a refueling depot. It could be a place where humans go and, and tour tourism. Nobody likes to sit on top of a refinery. There's no uh, Hilton hotels next to refineries. So these aren't going to be all aggregated on one thing. They're, they're going to be in different places. Uh, and just as a lot of the manufacturing needs a stable platform that without a lot of noise and well, you can, we can create all those things just like the James Webb telescope should be an outpost. It should be a scientific outpost that's serviced and repaired and refueled and used for many, many, many years beyond just what its lifespan is currently. So it's this very transformational from going from an expendable view of how we do things in space to a serviceable and sustainable architecture where we can do new things with small modular components uh, to just go up and, and take a satellite and upgrade it from 5G to 6G or to add more memory or replace a, a, a computer that's, uh, that has obsolete electronics on it. There's a, that's going to be a huge market into itself. It's just doing all that. But we have to, to stop contributing to the debris around, around this earth and we need to not export that bad habit to other celestial bodies, certainly not the moon and not Mars. If you want to really leverage, if you want an environment that we're, we don't have a lot of space debris, then get away from expendable space launch and get to the idea that everything's going to be serviceable and sustainable. That requires the superhighway logistics infrastructure and the digital the digital environment that's going to enable it. And that's that's the hybrid space architecture or the space inter- internet for connectivity. The most interesting things we want to do in space all require access to the cloud. And there is no cloud in space. That's a great economic opportunity. And these things aren't, we can talk freely about these things here. They're not aspirational. I mean, they are kind of, but there's companies working on all these things. But guess what? So is China. China realizes that if they can get out and if they can build a space superhighway, if they can provide power, all the, the third world, you know, uh, and the equatorial zone around the, the earth, if they can uh, provide ultra cheap broadband communications and connectivity, they will do it, but it'll all be under the control of an authoritarian regime that has no respect for your privacy, for your freedoms, your liberties, appreciation of your personal property. <laughs> so the, that's that's a scary world to to see China explode and and dominate in in the in the second half of this century. Absolutely. Now, what about this uh, this particular recommendation with regarding to climate change? What's well, wonderful, actually, you know, the, the space sector was on top of climate change before anybody else was, right? And in fact, uh, one of the quotes in the report is that 90% of what we know about climate change today were from base. And this is from satellite observation and many other things that we've done over the course of uh, the last uh, half century. And there's tremendous opportunity for us to do even more in space in terms of not just identifying, you know, sources of uh, CO2 or measuring changes in the the ozone or anything else like that. But also it's important to know that all these new things, whether you're connecting communities with ultra cheap broadband communications or providing power, imagine if we, by providing space power 
to the world where all you really take the inefficiencies of having solar power for only a few hours a day, limited by cloud cover, to having continuous solar power that um, as much as you want and, and without having to put solar arrays everywhere. That's pretty phenomenal. That and that's transformational because if you really are serious about getting away from fossil fuel economy, you need to go nuclear, uh, which we know how to do, and you need and you need to go with space solar power. I'll tell you this: uh, the reason we need to reinvest in nuclear is important because we need to be able to survive the night on the moon, go to other places, travel to uh, uh, travel to to Mars uh, via direct trajectory. Is going to require nuclear power, nuclear propulsion. Some of that is talked about in the report as well. But, but the most amazing thing, if you're trying to understand and appreciate what's going on with the world and mo- really monitor climate change, is that there's an exponential growth in commercial satellites. We'll have the number of commercial satellites will outnumber government satellites by exponentially by you know thousands by the end of this decade. In fact, there's one estimate that says there'll be over. 100,000 commercial satellites on orbit by 2030. And, and that's really, I mean, that's going to be a reality. And, and they're going to have the best technology and the best means and of, of telling us what we need to know. Uh, and all that data is going to be available to everyone, which is, which is really important because they'll be uh, commercially sourced and hence they'll be unclassified. But in all, order to achieve all these great things we talked about today, it's really important. We must continue to reinforce that space is an economic domain. Space superhighway, the space internet or hybrid space architecture, these are critical critical components or components of critical infrastructure that require both public and private investment and advocacy. The best thing, absolute best thing that the Space Council can do is to advocate and paint a picture and develop a roadmap of where we need to be through the 2050 at the first half of this century so that we don't cede or forfeit U.S. leadership in space, and that we are the pacing entity to follow, and that we embrace a space domain consistent with the Artemis Accords and the space treaties and other things that we've done that makes space available for everyone. We don't want to see Spratly Islands and the South China Sea debacle repeated in the solar system, least of all on the moon. So I think there's a, I think there's a lot of really good content that everyone's going to enjoy. The report's an easy read. There's a lot of graphics, and and you'll see some of the visions and and achievements of uh, companies really be inspiring inspiring to the reader. General Budo, thank you for your time with us. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thanks to your audience. Uh, we will do a space industrial workshop in the uh, 2022, and we'll be announcing that hopefully in the first quarter of next calendar year. Outstanding. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Space Strategy Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening. For questions and comments, please reach out at spacepod at afpc.org. Thank you for listening.